Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by Jacob Malicic, another one of our hosts. Jacob, how's it going tonight? Hello. I'm doing okay. Uh, we had uh, some, some interesting weather, as we discussed before we got on, but other than that, pretty good. <laughs> We're hobbits. We're currently enjoying second winter. Yeah. Um, but uh, on the line with us also is not just me and Jacob, but all the way from New York, uh, Jessica Plummer. Uh, Jessica, who came, who has been on, on this show now a couple of times, most recently talking about the last season of Punisher. Uh, we had a great time talking with her about that and wanted to get her back on. Um, and so, Jess, uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, uh, we, we have Jess back on today because we want to talk about season two of Punisher. Um, anyone who's listened to some of the last couple of episodes has heard that Jacob and I have a couple of fairly strong feelings about this season. Um, and from following Jessica, your Twitter feed, I, I'm guessing you're somewhat similar. Um, and I, I wanted to say though, a quick word at the beginning, um, for our, for our listeners. Uh, one thing I think you folks might be excited about, and we're going to put more about this in the show notes, but I wanted to start with it now. Um, coming up soon is a fantastic conference called WISCON. WISCON happens Memorial Day weekend every year, uh, at uh, the end of May, Memorial Day weekend, here in Madison, Wisconsin, where Jacob and I are based. Um, and it's actually where Jessica and I first met. It is a fantastic conference, uh, specifically about feminist, uh, 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 understandings of science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, all the kind of stuff that this superhero ethics podcast talks about. Um, a lot of my, my desire to do this podcast was inspired by the conversations that came out of it, especially given that, um, uh, the, the conversations I, a lot of the great guests we've had, like Jessica, like Becky Allen and some others came from people I met at WISCON. And I'm telling you all about it because we're actually going to try and do a meetup. It's not, uh, scheduled exactly when that's going to be yet. Stay tuned for that. But I've talked to the people at WISCON. We're going to be able to get a room. And at some point, we're going to basically have a superhero ethics fans meeting, get together, talk about things, talk about superhero ethics questions and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to just kind of throw that out and, uh, say, uh, Jessica, I hope you'll be able to be a part of that. And uh, you, will you be at WISCON this year? I will be at WISCON. Um, I will even be on panels about superheroes. I'm on the awesome. Batman and mental health panel. So, Oh, I looked at that Very one. That cool. looked really interesting. I think the answer to that question will be no. <laughs> he doesn't have any. <laughs> Batman um, does not have mental health. That's your conclusion. He, it's a good conclusion. He does not. <laughs> um, but I'm excited for our, our meetup uh, where we where we determine the most ethical superhero, which is exactly. what I'm assuming I, we'll be doing. I like exactly completely. Um, well, and so let's talk about that most ethical of uh, and most heroic of, of people, if not very super, <laughs> um, extreme uh, sarcastic a- emphasis on both of those words, uh, Punisher. Um, and, and Jess, can you start just a little bit? I know you, uh, if I understand correctly, you probably know much more about Punisher than either me or Jacob because you're a big uh, fan of – or at least you're a big uh, follower of the Punisher from the comic books as well as the TV show. Is that correct? Yeah, um, so I I actually, to prepare for this, I listened back to our episode um, where we talked about season one, um, and I had talked a bit on there about how uh, to prepare for watching season one and for writing about the Punisher, both as a character in general and the show itself. For Book Riot, I had wanted to, you know, give myself some grounding in his comics, so I read a couple hundred Punisher comics and my takeaway was sort of, oh boy, this is a mess. Um, yeah. And yet I find myself continuing to read the comics. Um, so yeah, I have, I have continued to follow the character um, since 
our last discussion, I, I don't know that I would say that I'm a fan of the Punisher. I like Frank. Mm-hmm. I think he's really interesting. I think there are some fascinating things about him, but in kind of a, oh boy, comics can be real messed up kind <laughs> of way. Yeah. And I also uh, am sort of morbidly fascinated by the just terrible, uber-violent, really immature uh, comics of the late 80s and early 90s. And he he's all over those, so that's mm. a lot of fun to me. But not in like a, I think these are great and everyone should read them kind of way. I, I, I can understand that. I think that's going to uh, um, color a lot of the conversation we're about to have. I know that for sure, um, and Jacob, I think you've said something similar. I, I, I think of the Frank, Frank Castle and the Punisher as a fascinating character. But frankly, at least in the, the Netflix MCU world, I thought he's worked best as a foil. Where instead of, to me, he's interesting on his own show. Where I think I liked him most was on the Daredevil TV show, where you have Daredevil as a character who's saying, I want to fight for justice. I want to do good. But I want there, I want there to be a line that I don't cross into revenge and vengeance and taking joy in this. And that the Punisher was there to sort of represent what happens if Daredevil goes over that line. Um, and, and, and I think in some ways you kind of lose something when, when Frank is just on his own instead of existing to be the foil against someone else. Um, does that, does he, does he play that kind of a role in the comic books a lot in terms of being sort of positioned as what the other characters are not willing to do? Or is he often, kind of like we get in the shows, just kind of his own thing? I think it depends on whose name is on the cover of the comic. Yeah. Um, I mean, so he is often paired with Daredevil, for example, and who is quote unquote correct and or who is going to actually win that showdown is entirely based on who is on the cover of the comic. Like if it's a Daredevil comic, Daredevil is right and he will win. And if it's a Punisher comic, Frank is right and he will win. Um, With other characters, he might show up like just kind of to create shenanigans. Uh, He sort of functions in that way with Spider-Man a lot. Um, Or to be an antagonist, an obstacle, but not necessarily the villain. And then in his own comics, he generally takes a similar viewpoint to what I would say the show does, which is uh, Frank is right and it's, you know, an unpleasant truth that we don't want to face, but it's there. Right. Which, I mean, I think I think we can and will spend a lot of time unpacking <laughs> that premise. But well, yeah, in his solo comics, I mean, because that's sort of that's sort of what you have to do with a protagonist, right? Like they can make mistakes, but they have to essentially be posited as going in the right direction. Right. It doesn't work if the if you're building a story centered around a character and the audience is not meant to buy into what the character is doing in any way, um, which is partly why season one was so compelling for me, and partly and also partly why I have some real issues with season two. Yeah, I I, I would mostly agree with you there. I think that there have been some shows recently that have shown 
what it means to have a, a character who is a protagonist but not by any means a hero. Um, like Breaking Bad to me is a great example of this, where mm. I think you're not supposed to be rooting for the main character, but you still find him compelling. And and as I think we've all alluded to, we'll get into. I think I was definitely hoping that that's where season two of of the Punisher was going. It it didn't, and I think I was very disappointed by that. Um, and it sounds like we all have some version of that. Well, right, because there, there's a way to tell the story, like like you pointed out with uh, Breaking Bad, and it's it just in some other. Uh, some other media uh oh goodness now i can't remember there's a show about a serial killer who's um dexter dexter Dexter, yeah uh where like you know it's it's very clear uh at least from from what i've seen that you know you're not supposed to be sitting there uh you know identifying with or or uh thinking okay this is all okay uh, or, or being told that these that this person is doing the right thing and has the right motivations, and I do feel like the Punisher is sort of being presented in that uh, very classic, like same thing with Daredevil, same thing with Luke Cage. What this character is doing is what needs to be done and is the right thing. I just have a harder time buying it. Yeah. Well, and, and so let's use that. To, and I think we've already kind of touched on it, but but what what were our kind of general thoughts? of season one and like what were some of the things that we were like coming out of season one what, what were some of the sort of the things we were either looking forward to or we were concerned about going into season two of Punisher I mean I thought that season one was it was very thoughtful um not to not to jump ahead to season two but I thought that the difference between season one and two of the Punisher was in a lot of ways the same as the difference between seasons one and two of Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, which was uh, the showrunners clearly entered into season one with an idea of what they wanted the show to be about and what they wanted it to say. So season one of Daredevil is about the ethics of violence and uh, how far can you go before it's too far. And season two of Jessica Jones is about um, sexual assault and PTSD and recovery. And season three of Luke, or season one of uh, Luke Cage is about um, institutionalized racism and community. And season one of The Punisher is about PTSD as it relates to veterans and how veterans are treated by our government. And then they get to season two and they kind of, it, it's, it's almost like they go into the writer's room and they're like, oh, dang, this has to be about something too? Yeah. Because can it be about the same shows, thing again? Yeah, <laughs> they, like seem they to all say. completely fall apart. They don't they none of them seem to have a thesis statement. And so it's just the characters kind of wandering around. Um and so what I liked about season 1 of The Punisher was that it had a really clear thesis statement. It had something it really wanted to say. And season 2 not so much. Yeah, and it's sort of I, to, go ahead, Jacob. So, so sort of to, to piggyback off of that, uh, because I agree, uh, and I think one of the other reasons why uh, season two worked for me is that the people who were around Frank, um, specifically, I'm thinking of David Lieberman. Uh, effectively, they got opportunities to be right when Frank wasn't, uh, and I feel like that's very important for setting up a uh, a more interesting story when. You know, there are situations where your main protagonist uh, is presented as somebody who is not perfect when they obviously aren't, right? And I did like the sort of conflict and tension there. And again, to, to contrast it with season two, I felt like at every turn, 
every time one of our other uh, heroes, if you want to call them that, uh, questioned or came into conflict with Frank, it was very clear uh, from the way the narrative was structured that not a single one of them was, quote, correct, unquote, even if I happen to agree with them. Um, and this comes through in some very damaging ways, especially when we look at Frank's interactions with um, with his uh, new ally, which he doesn't really treat as an ally for most of the show. Uh, sorry, the, the interactions between um, between her and Frank are one of the reasons why it's difficult for me to talk about this season. You're talking about the teenage girl who he kind yep. of adopts, but also treats like garbage Amy. for most of the show? Amy, Amy thank you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have a lot of opinions about Amy that I think um, are... <laughs> I am a sucker for that kind of storyline, so I have my my heart feelings about that plotline, and then I have my brain feelings about that <laughs> plotline. They're not the same. But going back to your initial point, Jacob, I I think that that's what so many Punisher stories do, is they... They warp the world around them um, because when it's a Punisher story, no one else can be right and no one else can be competent. So Mm. all of a sudden we have these – I mean every single person on this show who is not Frank is astonishingly bad at their jobs. Or I should say, no, there's three people who are competent. Uh, Frank, Billy, and Pilgrim. Yeah. Because they're the badasses. And they're amazing, and they can do all sorts of things that no one should ever be able to do. Like, things that are completely impossible. We're never even shown how they do them, because it's just assumed that they can do them. And everybody else can barely put one foot in front of the other. No one can do their jobs. No one can, like, fire a gun or even practically walk through a door without screwing up um and in line with that everybody else is wrong about everything all the time mm-hmm. and, and i think that's a really good point i think at this point we're just comfortable just jumping into season two uh in general and we're talking about the kind of general feelings before we get into specifics because to me one of the things that I, the characters i liked most in season one was agent madani because yes. and i do think in season one she was quite competent and she was she had a worldview that was limited, and part of the idea, I think, was supposed to be that, that Frank was helping her to open her eyes to that to some extent, and, and I had some objection to that, but to some extent, I liked that concept. But she was someone who seemed far more competent in, in season one, and then I think, as you're right, uh, Jessica, in season two, her competence just falls out the window, and she becomes completely, uh, not, not in a romantic way, but, but in a really kind of stars-in-her-eyes way about Frank of... He can do no wrong. He can save everything. He can fix everything because she can't do anything herself. Oh, my God. There's a line towards the end of the show. It's like the second to last episode where she says, Frank is not a criminal. (laughs) My eyes rolled out of my sockets and onto the floor. And my wife and I had to go collect them and put them back in when she said that. Because it, oh, my God. Justified. But he's done so many crimes. He's yeah. literally broken the law basically every <laughs> single episode. <laughs> but no, he's not a criminal because he's doing the right thing, quote unquote. Yeah, like I I have a lot of a lot of issues with how women are treated in this season of the Punisher. Mm-hmm. Um I 
I'm less annoyed specifically from a feminist perspective with how incompetent Madani is in this season because I don't think it's gendered because like Curtis is also incompetent. Right. Brett is incredibly yeah. incompetent. Like right. I don't think I don't think that's specific to gender, but I, there's a period like around I don't know episodes three, four, five, where Frank and Amy are living in Madani's apartment, and Billy is living in Krista's apartment, and these the two adult women in the show basically turn into nagging housewives who are mm-hmm. like, "Pick up your guns! Are you going out again? I told you not to go out. Go kill the person I told you to kill." And it's like, what is this dynamic? What is happening here? Mm-hmm. So wait, you were saying you weren't happy with the portrayal of Dr. Quinzel in this? I mean, I'm sorry, that's not her name. That's from DC, but... I cannot believe that Floriana Lima quit her job on Supergirl, where she played an amazing, well-rounded character, to be treated like garbage on this show. I mean, I understand why, because this is a prestige show and Supergirl's on the CW, but, oh, girl, bad choice. Yeah, I was... Uh, we're, we're going to bounce around here a little bit, and that's okay. And I want to go back to your thoughts on her and Amy, but I think this is this is a good time to get into this topic. I one of the things I was most impressed by by season one of Punisher was the way it treated PTSD, um, particularly because, and I'm, I'm curious how you're going to talk about this at, at the, that Batman and mental health pro, um, uh, idea, um, ba- Batman and mental health panel at Wiscon. But you know, as I know you and I have talked about, and Jacob and I have talked about. There's an unfortunate habit of a lot of superhero media of making mental illness, especially PTSD, the justification for any and all uh, um, uh, vic- uh, villain, villain, villains. You know that that they're evil and terrible because they have PTSD or because they have mental illness. And as Jacob and I talked about, that was a big problem in um, Daredevil season three, and uh, in its portrayal of borderline personality disorder with the, the one of the main villains there. And I, I liked that in Punisher season one, it showed that PTSD can take, that not, not everyone has PTSD in the same way, that like any other, uh, mental condition, it can manifest in many, many ways, some of them violent, most of them not. And here, the portrayal of mental health and mental illness, and especially of a mental health professional falling for Billy, um, I, I called her Dr. Quinzel very intentionally because to me it's the exact, it's all the worst parts of the Harley Quinn, um, storyline just retold in an even more problematic way. Um, what what what's kind of what, what what's your take on uh, on that? I think you've already gone into it a bit, but what what's what, what, where did you fall on on how how that how it was portrayed for both of you? Yeah, no, I I one hundred percent agree with everything you said there, um, and I appreciate that you brought up Dex's plotline on Daredevil season three because, like, it's the same bullshit. They even use the same like. Musical cues whenever Billy is having like one of his episodes. Oh, I didn't even catch that, but you're right. It's identical. Like at least, I mean, at least on Daredevil, they went for those uh, wacky uh, Batman '66 Dutch angles whenever Tex was freaking out, and it was kind of funny. But here they're like, it's it's very serious. Take this very seriously. This very authentic portrayal. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's so much, like, that's not how amnesia works. Um, Like, so much of what they were throwing out there about actual mental illness was just, like, really, really old tropes 
um, so much of how they had Krista, like, of what she, the, the therapy that she was supposedly providing. Like, first of all, we don't even know, is she a psychiatrist? Is she a psychologist? Is she a therapist? Like, what is she? We don't know. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But so much of that was, again, these really, really old tropes to the point that I thought she was going to, like, lie everybody down on a couch and ask them if they had a dream about a cigar lately. Like, <laughs> it, it was just so dated and so, honestly, like, Look, I understand that the point of the show is, you know, nobody's perfect except Frank and everybody's kind of fucked up in a mess. And I don't want to say that mental health professionals can't have their own issues that they're working through. But there's such a stigma against mental illness and against seeking professional help still that to me, I find it really irresponsible to portray mental health professionals in this way, in this way where she's, she's so deeply unprofessional. Mm-hmm. She's uh, way too invested in her client, obviously, even before she lets him into her house. She uses this like weaponized therapy well before she like, you know, plums the depths of Madani's brain for how to destroy Frank. When Brett comes over to get some papers and she's like, did you know that crop, that cops have the same psychological profiles as criminals? I just thought that was interesting. That was <laughs> your problem, lady. That, um, that line and, is such a uh, hack writing thing. And I cannot believe they put that in the show. <laughs> it's so bad. bad. And the thing is, like, you never see positive portrayals of, uh, therapy on tv ever pretty much certainly not in superhero media but you only see this specific kind where they fall in love with their patient and it turns out they're also crazy uh when it's a woman yeah right. also harley quinn and the just all of the, like oh my god I, i'm incoherent because i'm so angry about how this character is portrayed because one of the things that makes me the angriest about bad writing for supporting characters, but especially female characters, is when the show never bothers to clue you in on what their thought process is. So yeah. when Billy shows up and she lets him stay, at no point do we ever get like what she thinks is going to happen here. Like she starts nagging him about going out. Did you think he would just live in your guest room for the rest of his life? Did you think there was a way you could get him back into custody? Did you think there was a way you could get him out of the country? What was the plan here? We don't know because the show doesn't give a shit about what's happening in Krista's mind, only what's happening in her pants for Billy. Um, Which of course leads up to the scene where he assaults her and she's super into it. And then they start a sexual relationship, and so yeah, and, and that scene yeah. also. I mean, first of all, just like granted, this is not the thing we're going to be defending that often on this show, but just because it's important to mention, like the once again the portrayal of BDSM sexualized in such a horrifically awful way, um, and 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 to me it, it it tied into so because it's this idea of like oh look they're eroticizing pain and and that's their kink in this way that is so incredibly non-consensual and so incredibly unhealthy. Um, but I often felt even more so than, than off, like 
<laughs> Other than Suicide Squad and some of the more recent portrayals, at least most of the Joker-Harley Quinn portrayals, A, Joker is very consciously, very actively, intentionally manipulating and, and fucking with her, and B, their their entire relationship is betrayed as ridiculously unhealthy that she should try to get away from. And it's one of the reasons why the Suicide Squad and some of those portrayals are so bad is because of how much they romanticize it and sexualize it. And to me, I thought in this way it was even worse because A, Billy kind of just stumbles into it. It doesn't seem like he's intentionally trying to make this happen with her. She's She does it entirely herself. But also, again, it's betrayed. to it, care about her. Yeah. And and it's portrayed as hot. They're they're trying to make it look like this sexy relationship the two are having when it is ridiculously problematic on all sorts of levels. The so uh, first of all, hundred percent agree uh, with everything said so far about the character of Krista Dumont. Like, I don't like the one dimensional therapist character. Generally speaking, um, I I especially don't like them when uh, they're not effective and we have this like it's not an uncommon trope where like they themselves are messed up and especially as as uh jess you pointed out there's this thing where if they're a woman and their uh their uh client is one of the bad guys and is a man they invariably fall for them and there's this whole like they are also crazy thing like all of that is just first of all it's it was tired the first time it made it in any form of media. It's it's comatose now. It is not like it's not interesting. Uh, but like in this case, in the case of Krista, um, it was like, and and I kind of felt this way about all of the the women characters in the show that like the like she existed just because Billy needed some to Billy's character needed somebody to bounce off of and so like it's it's mm-hmm. almost like she's not even a person um but rather something for for Billy Russo to interact with for Jigsaw to interact with because if he's just on his own I guess the scene doesn't carry I don't know like I just was not into anything about that storyline oh yeah she's absolutely not a person I mean I think it's very telling that we didn't get her backstory until probably episode it must have been episode 12 yeah um, it's very late because yeah. yeah because they they introduce it at the beginning of the episode so they can set up the her falling out the window at the end of the episode and i actually thought given what they'd shown us of her i was like oh you know what this backstory it actually makes sense like this is such a highly traumatic mm-hmm. moment for such a young child it pulls everything together but we needed it like at minimum three episodes earlier than that, because for so long we, we needed it early because what the show was expecting us to do was go along with all of her totally baffling decisions that were not explained and th- just behaving in ways that no human would ever behave because of course she would. She's in love with him. And that's not a sufficient reason. And it would never be considered a sufficient reason for a male character. Right. Right. And the, uh, well, yes. And, and there's that particular thing that you pointed out, Jess, is, is, was especially offensive to me because they gave us, they, they gave us her backstory. They, they tried to, 
it, it was a trick, right? It was all like, oh, look, here, here's here's a fully fleshed out character for you, uh, so that they could, so that the the writers could, uh, hurt her, right? To I, she died, right, in that episode. Is that correct? No, no. she's uh, she's alive in the last episode. Right. She's like in the bed with all the metal on her and Madani is like, Billy's dead. And she's like, I'll kill you. Right. 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 So like, anyways, we could do all of that without it. Like it's a writing sheet. They wanted to do that. So we would have some feelings about the situation. And it's like, uh... well, that scene in the hospital too. It just, I mean, we keep saying this was all really dated. It wasn't just dated. It felt like it was coming out of, a much more sort of traditional and um, hyper uh, stylized superhero universe. Like it yeah. felt like the setup for a supervillain. Like she's going right. to show up in like a robot suit in season three and be called like the therapist. <laughs> but that's not going to happen. And also this isn't that kind of show. So it was like, what yeah. universe are you sailing in from? Uh, so, so real quick, it would definitely be psychologist, CY psychologist, because it's cyborg psychologist. <laughs> oh God, don't don't put that idea I, out into the universe. Uh, uh, Disney, get at me. Uh, I will definitely write for your new Marvel shows. Well, and actually, that, that's a question. Is um, I mean, obviously, I know Jigsaw is a um um a, a character uh in the comic books that from Billy that Billy becomes. Is there any hint in any of the stuff you read about Billy seducing his therapist and this being a plot, or is this 100% invented by the writers of this show? Oh, no, this is all new. In the comics, he's not even uh, he's not even Frank's friend from the military. He's just like a gangster who okay. was really handsome, and then Frank threw him through a plate glass window, and then he actually has a hideous face yep. as opposed to on the show where they were like... This- <laughs> One little scar on the side of Ben Barnes's beautiful Prince Caspian face. Uh, <laughs> oh, look God. upon him if you dare. And and hey, he's uh, so I, broken up about it. He's like, "Oh no, my beautiful face!" And I'm like, "You're <laughs> fine." <laughs> I I I, exactly I can't entirely blame Netflix you. for that though, because that's what everyone does. I've been uh, chasing ahead, trying to catch up to Game of Thrones, so I stopped getting spoiled. Um, and of course, having read the books of that, I'm reminded that, you know, what is supposed to be Tyrion Lannister looking horribly ugly and scarred, they just put one little scar down his face. Um, but, 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 but back to the point there, I think, um, that, that actually is a good way to lead into something I knew we wanted to talk about as well, which is Frank and kind of his responsibility in this, because one thing I did like that the show touched on is that, at, as much as, yes, we don't really actually get to see Billy be as horribly ugly as he's supposed to be, but the show names that he is that ugly because of what Frank did. And I think it was actually, um, I'm pretty sure when the three of us did our uh, podcast on season one, this was one thing we talked about, was that at the end of season one, what 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 Frank does to Billy's face is far beyond any like attempt to stop him or to, to make him no longer a threat. It is straight up 100% Frank sadism coming out. Um, mm-hmm. And I I would have maybe wanted more of it, but I did get a sense that we were at least supposed to be thinking that, and I think if I remember early in the show, this was pointed out somewhat, is that what Billy has become and the further harm he's being, being done is a result of, of Frank sadism and, and of the, that coming home to roost. Did, did you guys get, get that sense? 
So I, I got the sense that the uh, Billy's character changed, shifted dramatically because he himself uh, has PTSD from that experience, right? There was a lot of there was a lot of uh, psychological damage, I think, intentionally inflicted by Frank, right, on the character of Billy Russo in that moment. The whole like struggling to remember what happened to him business was that that could have just died in a fire and been like we would have had a more compelling story but there was there was an element to that that i found um slightly compelling insofar as you know what and frank even kind of acknowledges it himself that what he should have done was just kill him right and in a rare moment of frank deciding not to do it he does something actually worse right um, in a lot of ways, what he does to Billy Russo is more of a violation than just terminating his existence. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I kind of rolled my eyes at the fact that, like, every other character in the show is like, oh, Frank, the one time you didn't kill someone was the worst mistake you ever made. You should kill people more. Like, <laughs> contextually, it's kind of a problem. Um, but... Yeah, what, what I find really fascinating about what Frank does to Billy at the end of season one and the, the aftermath of it um, that the show didn't touch on at all is most superheroes don't kill, right? So right. they need ways to stop um, villains who in many cases have incredible power and the solutions that they come up with are often just deeply deeply inhumane i mean arkham asylum is a perfect example of that like if you weren't crazy when you went in you will be after a week because it's a nightmare mm -hmm. um there's uh not to get too in the weeds of comic book continuity but there's a bit in the flash comics where um uh this was years ago but uh, Bart Allen, who was Kid Flash at the time, is killed by his evil twin. And so Wally West, who is regular Flash at the time, basically finds a way to steal all of the kinetic energy out of the evil twin's body so that he's frozen. And then he mounts him like a statue in the Flash Museum, staring at the Bart Allen exhibit, presumably for eternity. Yeah, I, I mean that's yeah, a straight up job of the hut stuff happening there. I mean, <laughs> like that is horrifying. But this is portrayed as like the the correct thing to do because you can't kill him. That would be wrong. Yeah, interesting. And so go on. I think they could have done something really interesting, but I think they would have had to bring in another superhero for it. Pointing out that like the one time Frank didn't kill and he just subdued somebody in a horrifying way, it's arguably much worse yeah um and sometimes just killing someone like just kill the joker already uh but they, they didn't do anything with that yeah i i think that's a good point there and i think because, especially because it's to me there's two different aspects to what frank does to billy and we only really get one of we, we, let me back up there, there's two aspects to what frank does to billy one of which is to not kill him the other of which is to intentionally torture him. And I, I think you're right. It, it sort of touches on the wrong thing because they keep saying, oh, Billy, you messed up by not killing him. When what they should be saying is, Billy, if you didn't kill him, Frank, at mm -hmm. least you shouldn't have tortured him because it's it's not that Billy is alive. Sorry, that, that Frank shouldn't have done that. It's not because it's not that Billy is alive that's causing him to be 
doing all these horrible things again. It's directly the fact that Frank tortured him so thoroughly, instead of either just killing him or just leaving him alive. Right. Yes, definitely. Um, I also, I mean, I, I kind of feel like after a while, yes, Billy does keep going, my face, my nightmares, my face. But in a lot of ways, I feel like the show kind of dropped, like, why Frank did that to Billy and what? because Madani tells him, he's like, she, she tells Billy, like, he did that to you because you killed his family. And which, when we get into talking about culpability, I, I want to come back to that. Yes. But, um, she says, he did that to you because you killed his family. And he's talking to Krista about it later. And he's like, but I, I liked his family. Well, anyway, he shouldn't have done that. And it's it's done. It's over for him. Like, that doesn't haunt him. It doesn't bother him at all. And in their subsequent confrontations, Frank never says, like, you killed my family. Right. And Billy doesn't even really bring up the... They're just... It's like they've forgotten. It's like the writers are just banging two action figures together. And the motivations are totally out the window because that's less cool than an explosion. I mean, right. we're supposed to just, I guess we're supposed to just remember and and do their work for them by going, oh yeah, Frank hates Billy because Frank, because Billy killed his wife and, and child. And I'm like, I'm, I'm right there with you, Jess, where it's, they, did, they didn't give us enough of that context every time Frank was going after Billy. It was like, no, I've got to stop him because he's doing bad things now, but... Where was that, like, he's still clearly acting out of a position of Billy is a very, very bad man. And that really mostly comes out of his personal experience, right? And, like, the whole reason that he's in this situation in the first place is he thought death was too good for him. And the the background of it, uh, his reason why, like, that needs to be there in order for him to actually wrestle with anything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think those are good points. And I think um, the thing about motivation especially, I, I think this kind of ties into everything. As we said, like Dr. Dumont, what is her motivation for falling for Billy? It's not really clear except, oh, look at his pretty wounded face. And women make bad decisions around wounded men. Uh, again, not, not that that's the writer's assumption by no means mine. Um, and I think it's actually kind of a good way to sure lean There it is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's a good way to lean into the, um, the, the one that you brought up earlier, Jess, of, of Amy. Because I, I, when you talk about women characters who are treated very badly by the show, I thought Amy and Frank's relationship with Amy, I thought was incredibly hard to watch. And a lot mm-hmm. of times where I thought he, you are not being a hero here. You're not being a person I can root for in any way, shape or form a- and made me really kind of question a lot of Amy's motivations towards him um, and as well as her, her, him towards her. Um, Jessica, uh, Jessica, obviously it seemed like you had, you had a lot of feelings on that. What, what's your take there on the, the, the Punisher Amy relationship? All right, so I have to I have to preface this by saying that my absolute favorite dynamic in fiction, like beyond everything else, is some kind of scrappy orphan girl and 
her reluctant, cranky father figure. It's my favorite thing. And this is my mother's fault because she showed me Annie when I was very young. Mm. Okay. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I imprinted on it really hard. And Mm. this is why I really loved um, the uh, Electra and Stick dynamic in Daredevil, even though it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I loved Logan so much, which is not oh, horrifying. Yeah. Logan handles it really well. I mean, it's why it, I love Darkwing Duck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, this means we need to get you back to go over the the professional slash Leon sometime. I will watch it, and I will have a lot of feelings about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I love that dynamic, and so. Even as I was watching and I was like, oh boy, this is a mess. My heart was like, yes, this is what I want. Even when like, like I totally get what you guys are saying. And he's awful to her. Like I have a bit in my notes where it says just tying Amy to the bed isn't funny. Like that's played for laughs. It's a joke where she's like, you don't have to tie me up again. And then we get that sting where she's tied to the bed again. Like that's every woman's worst fear. It's not funny. It's not an acceptable thing to joke about. And yeah, like there, there's a complete dearth of motivation in their early relationship because why does he kidnap her? Why does he keep her? Why doesn't he just like leave it alone? And why does she immediately latch on to him as the only person who can help her? Um, and I, I absolutely recognize all of those things as problems, but I also like choked up when they said goodbye to each other and... Or when he's telling, when when Pilgrim asks him, like, what would you have done to save your kids? And he says, I'd have done anything. And then he says, I'd do anything for her, too. And, like, the look on her face, like, this is, these are cheap shots for me personally. And the Punisher (laughs) writers were cheating. But, so that's where I am there. Okay. Well, that that makes sense. I have a harsher take probably because I don't have that uh I didn't imprint on that particular storyline when I was young. Um but I, I mean if you guys want to watch Annie, we can do that. I've I've watched Annie. I love Annie, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, but I have curly red hair and I was in a theater group with a very high voice as a young child. Mm-hmm. I've played Annie <laughs> moving along. So um but but for me, especially like she let she latches onto him for reasons and he keeps her around to protect her and that whole dynamic is just messed up like the whole when she you know hides after he comes in and and bops his head with a thing and then he oh god and then he whips around and like nails her head against the wall and puts a gun to her head and shouts at her like this is his idea of i need to keep her around and watch her so i can protect her like and he's like that is just like it is one of the most toxic masculine scenes I have seen in television to date, and it I it has no place in the year twenty nineteen. It was ridiculously awful, and it just made me so uncomfortable. And I that was I almost checked out of the show in that scene. If you remember the episode I'm talking about, it's there in the trailer, yeah. and like he had just shown her the whole thing about like, and so she was practicing, like she was trying to get a somewhat real practice, and like his reaction was completely across the line. And they, you know what? The other thing is they never 
they never pay back to it. Like he never goes, that was out of line. I didn't do, I shouldn't have done that to you. They, nothing like that. No, just moving on. Frank's right. March to the tune of Frank's right drum. Oh yeah. Well, he, he doesn't apologize for things because he's right about everything. And like, I get what they were going for. And that like, he's so deeply traumatized by the loss of his children that, the this girl who he has come to love like a daughter doing something dangerous triggers like these the, this intensely violent fear in him but it's not okay and like at least we had Curtis standing there going what the hell stop it <laughs> right um that said like the and I I agree with you like I'm not trying to right uh deny you like you're absolutely right um but when they call back to it again, when um, she uh, disarms the guy, when like her friend sells her out and all the guys yep. are coming after her and she disarms the guy again using the same trick that Frank showed her and then she shoots him and then she's freaking out about it and yep. Frank shoots the guy so that technically he killed him and she didn't, mm-hmm. even though she had clearly fatally shot him. Like, mm-hmm. I thought that that was a great moment. Although again, like stick another pin in the culpability thing. Um, but I, yeah, like there, there are some moments that I thought they sold really, really well. Um, I also really like the scene where they go to the, um, the photographer who takes like the kitty porn pictures mm-hmm. and Frank just beats the crap out of him. And she's like, ah, oh, well, maybe don't kill him. And Frank's like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they're like, it, it alternates between like these really cute scenes where like these two messed up people are like trying their best. And these just like really, really fucked up scenes. Yeah. Like, I think it's also worth noting that um, at least Krista got backstory we don't know what the hell Amy's backstory is. And like at the very end when he's like, all right, get on the bus. I'm like, to where does she have parents? We don't know. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that when, when especially you brought the comparison to Logan uh, with X 13. Um, Logan, I, I've mentioned, we, we did a whole episode before on it. One of my absolute favorite, if not probably my favorite superhero movie of all time. And, I think one of the differences there is a, we get so much more of her backstory in a way we never get of Amy's. But also is the fact that she pushes Logan to help her. Like, and to me, it's that, it's the difference in, cause I, like you, I do love that kind of story. I, I love that, uh, that kind of mentor mentee dynamic and, and the way that, the, you know, the gruff old bear of a father figure and how that can play out. But what I love to me that the thing that's lacking here is that at the start, Amy very much does not want that and is, not only mentally, but physically coerced into having that relationship with Frank in a way that, like, yeah. in comparison, Logan is the one trying to escape it, and X-13 is kind of like, no, no, no we, we we need to have this. 23. X-23, sorry, thank you. I'm bad with names. Dad with numbers <laughs> or names. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's... Because to me, that's the thing that, that, that got to me most, is that it, it, it's one more of that way of... What you were talking about from the beginning, everyone else is wrong. Frank is always right. Everyone else is stupid. Frank's the smart one. And no one else can get by by themselves. When, as we've established, Amy is someone who has been a survivor for quite some time and is on the run and is being hunted, but has not been totally incompetent up to this point. And so even more so, I think Frank's assumption of, 
I need to take over and not let this person have any agency just drove me crazy. Yeah, and as the story goes on, like, she doesn't have any, like, even once she's on board with Frank helping her, she can't get him to do anything. If it's a Billy episode, she just sits around. Like, she doesn't get to do anything when he's dealing with Billy. She just has to wait for him to have time for her. Right. Well, and let's use that to go into what was kind of well, the main question I wanted to, to ask, or at least one one of them, and there's, there's two or three that'll come out of it. But what what do we think of Frank in this show? And 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 for me, the real question is: Is he a hero? Can we still look at the Punisher and call him a hero? In terms of his treatment of Amy, his treatment of Billy, his treatment of Curtis, his treatment of just the world around him. I mean, you knew my answer to this question uh, before you asked it, but uh, in case anybody in the audience has been dead uh, for the last <laughs> five months, uh, Frank Castle has literally never been a hero in the Marvel Netflix universe, at least. And here, I feel like the show crossed the line into he's actually just as much of a villain as the people he's fighting. And this is just a show about bad people doing bad things to each other, and some of them might have sympathetic motivations, but, like, Frank's still a monster. Like, sorry. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think um, earlier, Matthew, you said something about um, shows like... uh, Or, sorry, Jacob, maybe. I can't remember who said it. Somebody was saying something about Uh, um, Breaking Bad. We all sound alike, no big deal. (laughs) Um, when we were talking about Breaking Bad and Dexter and how you have these characters who are not, they're not heroes, they are protagonists and you still root for them. Right. I think one, I mean, I agree that Frank has never been a hero. I think you could make a case for him being an anti-hero or at least you, someone whose actions can be to a certain extent justified. Right. Or sympathetic. And... One of the things that we lost in this season was that character work with him. We lost that interiority. We lost Mm -hmm. who he was as a person. And so it is, I think that his, his actions are worse in this season and the way he treats other people is worse because prior to this in Daredevil and in season one of Punisher, among other things, he was deeply respectful of women. Like Mm -hmm. he was, he treated Karen much better than Matt ever did. Yeah. Um, in this season when he's like, Matt's a good guy. You should be with him. I'm like, you know better than that. Come on. <laughs> Matt's bad with his um, friends. Uh, yeah. He doesn't do friends but, well. <laughs> um, we, because we lose that human side of him, it's so much harder to get on board with the really inhuman things that he does. And we're also much further away. And I thought, I figured this was always going to happen with season two. We're much further away from that really relatable motivation of, you know, I have to find the people who killed my family. I mean, Billy is still out there, but it's, it's so much more removed. Right. I I, I think that's a really good point. Um, Especially because, and we've talked about this before on this show, I think there is sometimes, you know, th- th- there is something fun about revenge fantasy, and there is something fun about the sort of visceral joy of not joy, but the, the the visceral feeling you get watching a person do something that, on some level, you know is wrong, but also feels deeply satisfying, you know, and the 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 
the, the, the Punisher, I think, has always had some aspect of that, of like, on a rational level, you might think like, yes, we should, you know, treat criminals just the way anybody else should be treated in terms of human rights and the criminal justice system. But yeah, watching some terrible person get their just desserts, th- th- it satisfies something visceral. And there's something fun about watching that, even if you think it's not the right thing deep down. Um, I... Uh, one of our first episodes is we talked about one of my favorite movies, uh, Desperado, which is basically the Punisher story except played for laughs. Um, but it's the same, you know, a man whose wife and, and family was taken from him by drug dealers seeking out revenge in gruesome, hilarious ways. Um, and it's, it's, we talked on that episode about it, about how that, that, that there's, there's a visceral, visceral reaction to watching that, that that's enjoyable, even if you think it's wrong. And I feel like Punisher season one gave us that. And maybe you're right, in part because of also that, that relatability, because you could feel like, yeah, if I, if this horrible thing happened to me, to me, I would maybe want to do this to these people too. And you're right, we don't, we don't get that this season. And I I feel like because of that, there's no, for me, it was about halfway through season one of Punisher that I stopped feeling that anyway. And certainly like when, when, when he's torturing Billy, I don't have that. There's no part of me that's like, yeah, Billy deserves to have this horrible torture done to him. And by season two, that's all gone. There's just no sense anymore of what the Punisher's doing is satisfying to me on some way, even if I don't, I think it's wrong. It just felt wrong. Well, I think one of the core things that we lose in season two is a feeling of sympathy for anyone. Like yeah. season one, you have sympathy for Frank because of the loss of his family. You have sympathy for all the veteran characters because the show takes great pains to show you why you should have sympathy for them. You have sympathy for Madani because she's lost her partner. She's like trapped in this maze where nobody's giving her answers. Every character that we meet, I mean, even um, Sarah Lieberman, like she's lost her husband. All of these characters were we're given a reason to sympathize with them and season two has no sympathy for anyone. Like season one portrayed veterans as a group of people struggling with traumatic events in a myriad of ways. Season two portrays them universally as rabid dogs. Like, all, like across the board. I mean, I guess except Curtis, but all the rest of them, they're like, "Hey, you want to do some crimes?" Like, there's no <laughs> nobody's like drugs and crimes. Um, Sign us up. Why, why are we Why are we robbing everyone and killing people? Like, there's not there's no hesitation from anyone. They're like, "Yeah, absolutely." Um, and Frank also the didn't mentally threaten. Ill. Uh, yeah, Frank, Frank. There's there's no sympathy for the mentally ill. There's no you know there's. Even like, oh, hey, Billy was molested as a child. Look at what a bad person he is. He killed that guy. You know what right. I mean? Like everything mm-hmm. that we're shown is is to set up plot, but not to make you feel a way about a character. And I think maybe that, that that's one of the things that really gets to why this season so disappointed me is that – as you just said, there, there, it seems like the writers aren't trying to challenge us in the same way. I mean, I, I just gave that whole long talk about how that kind of visceral feeling of watching someone get revenge. And I felt like one thing that season one of Punisher did so well is to both let you have that feeling 
and then immediately be like, hey, do you actually really feel okay about having that feeling? Like it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it pushed you on that in such a good way. And I was like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable about this. I like this so much. And season two, I didn't feel like that at all. I felt like the writers completely, but in season one, I felt like I am uncomfortable with Frank in ways that the writers are also uncomfortable with Frank. And I did not get that in season two at all. In season two, it felt like the writers really just thought Frank was really cool and badass and wanted us to go along with that. And, and that any moral qu- questions that were being raised, the writers weren't trying to make us think about those questions. Uh, yeah. That's a really good segue into the, uh, the guilt and responsibility angle, I think. Uh, which yeah. At this point, I think maybe that's our closer, uh, given the time, but. I think so, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's one more yeah. big topic to get into, and then we don't have too much more time. So the the idea here, and uh, it was something that Jess had brought up, and I'm very glad uh, she did, because we definitely need to talk about this. There is a, a continuing theme in the show about, you know, what, what makes somebody uh, responsible for their actions and who gets who who gets blamed when a character dies or when, when somebody gets killed. Um, uh, I know for me, the, the one that's at the forefront is the the whole thing where there were a bunch when, when Frank unloads an automatic weapon into a room, a couple, like a level above him that he doesn't see into. He can't see anybody who's in there. And then comes in and sees a bunch of uh, bodies of non-military people of civilians and instantly assumes that he killed them. And if that continued, that would have been one thing that the season did right. Where they like actually treated that, you know, treated that topic as something that's like, oh wow, I'm not a bullet sorcerer. I can actually be responsible mm-hmm. for killing innocents when I'm using scattershot weapons and, and automatic weapons in areas that don't just have enemies. But instead, it turned out that no, Billy killed them, so it's all fine, I guess. But in a way, Krista killed them. <laughs> <laughs> God, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, absolutely. Like that. Yeah, that's I think the core moment where this question comes into play. But yeah. the show is super inconsistent about when it is or is not someone's fault. So, for example, Billy did not shoot Frank's family. He didn't even, it wasn't even his idea. He wasn't behind it. He just knew about it and didn't warn Frank. That's very explicit in season one. Mm. But yep. he is still portrayed, like everybody agrees, Billy included, he is responsible for their deaths. He essentially killed them and he is treated as if he killed them. Whereas because Frank didn't actually shoot those women, he carries absolutely no blame for their deaths, but it was Krista's idea. So it is kind of her fault as well as Billy's. And then of course there's the moment with Amy that I mentioned before where she shoots the guy fatally, but then Frank kills him. So he's the one who actually kills him. Yeah. And like that's clearly just meant to make her feel better. Like they both know and the audience knows that she's the one who killed him. So like the show is wildly inconsistent about when it is or isn't someone's fault based on whose fault they feel like they want it to be at that particular moment. 
Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that gets into it. And I, I think it also hits on something that has been one of my frustrations with the Netflix universe in general, and literally with all of these stories in general, but especially with Punisher, which as you, the, what you said, bullet sorcery, like there's an, you brought up at the beginning, Jessica, the idea that like, you know, some heroes decide they're not going to kill. And to me, my problem with that has always been this assumption that when it comes to lethal violence, you get to make a very conscious decision. Either I will kill or I won't kill. And if I decide not to kill, then I can go around hitting people in the head with metal pipes, just as a random example, um, and it'd be guaranteed that I'll never kill anybody. And why you got to call out Matt Murdock like that. He's just a dumb boy who doesn't know what kills people. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> Batman, for example, does the same thing all the time. Or 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 forget or let's go to CW where where now uh, Oliver Queen has learned exactly where to fire an arrow to do non-lethal damage. Um but, but oh, the but point he, is that the, with the boxing arrows, glove arrows. Yeah. <laughs> we should bring those back. Yeah. For, bring back for the Punisher, boxing glove arrows. For Punisher, well, and oh God, what have I started? Not to get too, not to get too off track, but it, it also, in a lot of ways, um, it has a lot to do with who is considered a person when you yep. are killing or not killing someone. So in season one of Daredevil, Matt says that he never killed anyone, but he caused Nobu to be immolated. Yeah, and as far as he knows. Nobu is now dead. And in season two, he throws Nobu off of a great height and again should believe that he is dead. And neither of those count as killing him. And because Matt doesn't know that Nobu is like an immortal zombie, the only reason I can imagine that he thinks it doesn't count as killing is because Nobu is Japanese because we're not given anything else. Yeah. I think Matt Well, I mean, the whole point of, of, season, yeah. of, of the second half of season two of Daredevil is that he's now fighting these, like, you know, mindless ninja, zo- ninja zombies, and so they can be killed. Um, and they're all Japanese. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. But but going back to my point about, about Punisher in that scene, one of my problems has always been, and this is also a huge gun control issue, is that there's this idea with Punisher of he will always only shoot the people who deserve it, and there's no such thing as a stray bullet, and there's no such thing as collateral damage, and <clears throat> he's never taking risks don't worry about, which that whole scene where he's just mindlessly firing in a hospital in season one seems to give the lie to, but Jacobs, you said, he has bullet sorcery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I, I was not happy with a lot of season two. But then we get to the scene where it seems like he has accidentally shot people. And I was – happy is not the right word because he just shot people. <laughs> but it's, it's – I was like, oh my god, these writers actually get it. I was wrong. The writers are going to show us Frank Castle having to deal with the consequences of his actions. I am so happy about this. I'm so – this is now the show I want us to be having. Mm-hmm. And then, oh no! I knew that would never happen. Well, yeah. I knew Billy had killed them. <laughs> you, you were less, I, I, you were less naive nor us. So yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I think you, you, you knew better because I one hundred percent fell for it. And then I was so disappointed when, when, when we revealed because not only does it let Frank off the hook, it's the fact that everyone in his life completely lets him off the hook because there's no sense of okay, you didn't, but you could have. 
Like, how did you possibly know that there were, you had no way of knowing there weren't people in that room? You could have killed them. And for the show to, and as, as I think about it, tell me if I'm wrong, I think it's all women. It's Amy, it's Madani. Oh, it's three women. Say again? Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, yes, yes. Sorry, yeah. I thought you meant the victims were all women, which they also are. Oh, well, yeah, no, but, but I mean that all of the people who are suddenly 100% on Team Frank, that he's feeling guilt, and they're like, no, no, you're fine, you're fine. It's the three women in his life, who, who all of whom mm-hmm. are hanging around with him, you know, talking him up all the time. And I just, I think that scene more than anything infuriated me and just made me kind of really realize that where I want to be and where the writers of the show are are two totally different places. Yeah, and you notice that um, everybody stopped caring that those women were dead at all or yep. being upset. Mm-hmm about the the pointless deaths of these women once it wasn't Frank's fault. Like, that was the only problem there. It wasn't that three nameless women were murdered. Like, the level of women in refrigerators that's going on there, where, like, a woman uh, manipulates another woman so that she can get her boyfriend to murder three women, like, it just... Mm. It, it's so infuriating the way their bodies are used, I just, mm-hmm. it makes me so angry. Um, but yeah, once it's not Frank's fault, they no longer matter. Because it's not their deaths, it's that Frank could have made a mistake, and we can't allow that. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I'm kidding. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> God, it just, it's well, so I, upsetting. One other note. One other note on that. How insanely bad are the forensic experts on the NYPD if they could not figure out? <laughs> bullet angles? Bullet, bullet angles. Like, it's that simple. Come on. It was like, they, I mean, that's basic forensics. Like, yep. okay, they were killed. There's gunpowder residue on them, so they were killed from up close. Nobody noticed that until Madani was like, oh, I'm going to... I mean, it wasn't her fault, but like, then Karen has to offer herself up in kind of a sexual way to the... Oh, I had forgotten about that entirely. The shoes thing. God, that's so... Which also just, Remember, on top of the BDSM thing, another weird little bit of kink shaming of like, oh, look, the guy's yeah. in his shoes and let's laugh at that for just well, no good reason. Remember that if a not traditionally attractive guy forces a woman to do something sexual that she doesn't like, it's funny. But if a handsome guy with like a scar to assault a woman it's hot yeah that's 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 what we're learning here except that of course neither of those things are true but that's what the show is saying yes, <laughs> yes and yes. this is why season two of dare of daredevil <laughs> season two of punisher <laughs> i mean that's also true yeah it's such a problem uh one of the many reasons like uh that i i i'm like i i i both grateful that you reminded me of yet another thing that really upset me about the season, but like I had actually managed to forget the whole thing with, uh, we we took Karen Page and we do, we reduced her to somebody who's just willing to do anything for good guy Frank, our hero Frank, up to and including this like really kind of demeaning and out of nowhere thing that 
It just it makes yeah. no sense, and, like, and it wasn't funny. I I really like Karen and Frank as I don't want to say as a couple because oof, that would be bad, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I find their romantic tension really compelling, and the scene where she's like, "We could maybe make it work," and he's like, "That's crazy talk." Like, and and she's saying like, "You have to move past this. You have to live again." Mm-hmm. Like, no, they can't have a functional relationship, but she does have a point. Like, I found that really compelling. So they can do it when they want to. They just yeah. didn't bother to do it. Right. Well, um, and especially because I can't help but see the two of them, you know, as you said, in relation to, to Matt Murdock, because he treats, in at least season one, he treats her much better than Matt does. And, and, and it brings it back to, to me, the way he got introduced in that Matt Matt is trying desperately to say, I can be this much of a vigilante, but I will never cross this line. And the Punisher is basically there going, dude, you're lying to yourself. And to some extent, I feel like the Punisher is right. And Karen, I feel like, is – for me, that is I, – I always felt that that's part of Karen's attraction to to Frank is that she feels like Frank is honest with himself in a way that Matt never mm-hmm. was. And and that at least – I don't know if, if you saw that as well, but to me, that's part of why I find that dynamic so compelling is because – there is an aspect to which the Punisher is real about what he's doing in a way that Matt Murdock or Batman or Mo- or actually, no, say not Batman, but that most vigilantes never will be. Yeah, Frank. Frank has Frank does not lie to himself, and he has never lied to Karen. And Matt does both compulsively all the time. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I can imagine, especially because Karen's whole thing is wanting the truth that's why she became a journalist that's why she became an investigator she cannot bear secrets um it makes total sense to me that frank would appeal to her over matt because like yeah it's a mess but at least she knows the size of the mess going in um not to jump away from that but going back to the the culpability issue i was also thinking about um at towards the end of the show when Frank confronts first the senator and then his parents. Mm -hmm. um, And he says, I think it's when he's yelling at David, he says the guy that you hired, which David didn't, um, but whatever, uh, the guy that you hired shot up a highway. So Frank is very mad when other people are shooting wildly around civilians. Only Frank is allowed to do that. But again, when you look at, uh, I think their names are Eliza and Anderson, the Schultzes. These are people who have never lifted a hand in violence. They have never directly killed anyone. They have caused an immense amount of deaths, but they haven't killed anyone themselves. But in that case, they are to blame and they are guilty. And I would, I agree with that. Yeah. But it, it just, again, goes to show the shifting, like, if you set into motion a series of events that leads to horrible things, how many of them can be laid at your door? Apparently none if your name is Frank Castle. Well, and, and you bring up actually it was one of the – I think it's related to this, not to start a whole new thing, but, but it's very much related to this idea of guilt and culpability, especially from Frank's perspective – which is the character of David Schultz. Um, and just, uh, we've been assuming for all this that people have been watching the show, although hopefully, um, uh, um, uh, most of what we're saying is pretty self-evident either way. But, but for those who know what we're talking about here, David Schultz is the, is the se- senator who's the son of these parents who are kind of behind everything. 
the, uh, and one of the main issues of the story is that they're trying to position him so that he can be president while hiding the fact that he's gay. And the assumption is all along that he is a very active participant in all these horrible things that are being done to cover up his secret. When what is revealed towards the middle, if not the end of the show, is the fact that he is as you know ignorant of all of this as anybody else, and that he has no role in the violence that's being done to protect the, the family's image of him. Um, I, I mention all that because to me, I thought one of the most troubling things that Frank does is Frank goes in with the assumption that David's behind all this, threatens David's life many times, um, but that even once Frank... I, at least as I understood it, and tell me if you, you saw it differently, but even once Frank becomes convinced that that's not what happened, that David has no idea, Frank continues to say to David, I'm going to hold your life hostage, and if your parents do something terrible to Amy, I'm going to kill and hurt you. And that, again, felt like such a moment of just villainousness from Frank's perspective, because here you have someone who is not only not really a villain, but is just as much of a victim as anyone else, uh, especially doubly victimized because it's his own homosexuality that's 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 caused so much of the issue. Um, what what was your take on Frank's treatment of that? Because it, it seemed almost that the show was almost portraying David as still still having some culpability in ways that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, if he wasn't so gay, then. You know, it would be fun. Like, I was really uncomfortable with how that was portrayed. That, like, he, the way that he was victimized by his own sexuality, and yeah, it, it just th- that this is the only queer character mm-hmm. on any. This is the only queer character in the MCU besides some people on Jessica Jones and. No spoilers, but uh, walk on role in Endgame, mm-hmm. um, like and and Luke Cage. But but yes, I for the most part, there's nowhere near enough gay characters. I totally agreed. Who's there? Are queer characters on Luke Cage. Yeah, the um um uh, uh shades. Oh oh right right right. No, good point. Um, I mean. They like one got killed and the other one is uh, oh, yeah. quote crazy unquote, but yeah, like yeah, it, it's it, not it, a healthy portrayal of bisexuality it, by any stretch of the imagination, but it is there. Oh uh, yeah, um, but the, David's sexuality is portrayed as a problem and a point just... of victimization. Uh, so uh, Jacob had to leave in the middle of the conversation. Um, but Jessica, just you and I can, can can keep going for a little while longer, because um, yep. as we were saying, yeah, there have there have been a couple of other portrayals of um, LGBT characters in the MCU, nowhere near enough. Um, but 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 with that, kind of go on with what you were saying about about David and his portrayal in Punisher. Oh yeah, just that it's it's so um, it's presented as a problem more than anything else, and a point of victimization and. Uh, that angle on it just put a real sour taste in my mouth. Um, but, um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, I mean, I sort of about whether, um, Frank is still threatening him, even though he knows he's innocent. I got the impression that that was more of a bluff. Um, not exactly a bluff, but just like, this is my leverage. Mm Mm-hmm against the Schultzes. Like I didn't 
think once he knew that David was innocent, he probably would have still smacked him around a bit because he doesn't seem to have a problem with that. But I didn't think he would actually kill him. But I did appreciate Curtis being like, oh, no, absolutely not. Um, And like... It was a little weird that all of the murder and the terrified teenage girl weren't enough to make Curtis go, no, no, this is too much. But at least he finally got there because he had very much been the uh, moral heart of the show Mm -hmm. in season one. And that kind of fell by the wayside a bit because he had to go along with Frank because Frank is always right. So I appreciated him kind of getting back to that place yeah i i think that's right and i think um i i think you're right that that there's at least some hint that frank is not that that there's a little bit of a bluff but i felt like there were two things that were missing for me one was and this again goes to your point about the re-victimization there was never a moment from frank of sympathy towards david there was never a moment of him recognizing david being a victim and thus him kind of expressing sympathy or expressing, you know, concern for what David had to go through, which I, I kind of, I, I think I would have expected from, from Frank, you know, that, 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 that mm-hmm. they were trying to show him as someone who wants to protect the victims, wants to protect those people who are being picked on and bullied, and that, that he would have seen David being victimized for sexuality in that same, in that way. And I was disappointed not to get that. And the other thing was, you may be right that he was, that he was bluffing, but he never told David that. There was never the moment where, like, there's that that phone call he has with the Schultzes after he already knows what is happening, where you hear David being terrified as he has to talk to his parents himself, if I'm remembering this correctly. And they hung up, and I remember, distinctly remember, wanting there to be a moment where Frank is like, good job, you sold it. You know, where something to show that now Frank and David are in on it together, and we didn't get that. We just saw David continuing to be scared. Um, and, and that's where, like, even if Frank is still bluffing at that point, the fact that he doesn't make a point to, to let David know it's okay, just, just really disappointed me again. And, and, and you're right, Curtis, at least being the moral, moral center there helped, but it was just one more moment where I was like, Frank is just not someone I can at all really respect in the way I used to. Yeah, no, I, I could see that. I think it's one of those things where, like, if it had been a novel or a, a comic, um, we could have gotten sort of Frank's interior thoughts on that where he's like you know I'm not actually going to do anything to him but I need his parents to believe that I will and so I need him to believe that I will so that you know he'll convey that to them you know something like that right but because it's a tv show and we don't have that insight yeah it it just it leads to exactly this where we don't know what he would do right so it's been pretty long, and Jacob already had to drop out. But um, from you, are there any kind of um, last thoughts or ideas you wanted to make sure we cover or get into? Uh, I think that's about it. I mean, I, I just I'm glad we're not getting a season three. Yeah, I I'm really going to miss the Netflix MCU, and I'm not wild about the the new Disney stuff, although some of it looks pretty good. But Punisher's one that I think um, you know, looking back on it, I think we got some good moments out of Punisher, but. But overall, for me, if if the going forward where we see Punisher is just as a as a walk on to other shows instead of for his own show, um, I think that that's something I'd be much happier about. 
Yep. Agreed. All right. Well, Jess, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, <clears throat> so for, for our listeners who want to know more about you and your writing and your work, obviously they can um, come to WISCON, and I hope they will, and uh, get to see you on that panel you're doing on Batman and mental illness. Where else can they find you and find your writings or your, your, your talkings and, and other, other places where you're putting out work? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at Jess underscore Plummer. Um, I write, uh, do most of my online writing for bookriot.com. And I also have an intermittently updated podcast <laughs> about Superman movies called Flights and Tights. Um, and you can find that on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Yeah, and that is, <clears throat> I will say, as someone who didn't realize how much he didn't know about Superman, having grown up with Christopher <laughs> Reeve being my primary vision of Superman. Uh, that is a great podcast and one I strongly recommend. I also realized I was I- incorrect earlier, um, and I said you'd last been on the podcast talking about Punisher. Actually, the last time Jessica was on the podcast was on an episode where we talked specifically about Batman and Superman and the tension between those two characters and why that works so well. Um, so thank you again for being a part of this. Thank you for being a part of <clears throat> all the stuff we're doing. Look forward to having you back. And to you all the listeners, we want to know what you think. Um, what was your take on Season 2 Punisher? Was this a great show, one you loved for reasons we missed? Uh, are there uh, things that we talked about that you agree with or disagree with or have a different perspective of? Um, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Um, best way to reach us is on our Facebook group, Superhero Ethics at Facebook. We also have a page that you can comment on. Uh, you can tweet at us at Superhero Ethics um, or you can uh, email us uh, at Superhero Ethics at Gmail. Um, you can tweet at each of us individually also. Uh, Jessica mentioned her Twitter. My Twitter is Caped Ethicist, and Jacob's is Bots Are People Too, with a letter R. Uh, all that was spelled out in the show notes, um, as well as some more information about WISCON, which, if you're anywhere in the Midwest or want to travel for the Memorial Day weekend, it's definitely going to be a great event. And as I said, we're going to do some kind of a meetup that we'll look forward to having you guys on. Um, if you want to find ways to support the podcast, we have a Patreon now. All the information is on our website. You can find it uh, and we'll be in the show notes for this. Any donations you can make are greatly appreciated and help to go to support the show uh, and all the things that we do. Uh, and so thank you guys all to you listeners. Jessica, thank you again for being a great part of this. Thank you to Jacob, who uh, had to leave early, but uh, this is always a great co-host. Uh, thank you to Jack, the guy who wrote our intro and outro music. And to all of you guys who listen, thank you so much. Have a great day. <laughs>